if you repeat results, you are in the business that is diagonally opposite to innovation. You know, I've heard people say it's all about execution. Blackberry was executing really well. Trouble is, the world changed while they were busy executing. The most powerful catalyst for getting people into the right frame of mind to do something different and to innovate is actually the sharing of stories. Welcome back to the Innovation Engine Podcast. I'm David DeWolf, founder and CEO of 3Pillar. And for this episode of the podcast, we'll be talking about the growing importance of the role of the chief product officer at driving innovation in many companies. Among the topics we'll discuss are the most important functions the CPO should perform, what kind of companies are best suited to hire CPOs, and how you'll know if your company is ready to hire one. Here with us today to talk about all of that and more is Ben Foster. Ben is the Chief Product Officer at GoCanvas and has been an Executive Product Advisor to more than 50 different product companies. His career includes four years in product positions at eBay, as well as VP-level product positions at companies like Adkami and Opower. Among the more than 50 product companies he has advised since his days in the Bay Area are well-known innovative software companies like Contactually, Aquacore, Storyblocks, and many more. Welcome to the podcast and to the studio, Ben. Great. Thanks for having me. It's awesome to have you. We've enjoyed uh, working with you over the last several years. Um, as we kick things off, um, let's talk about life at Go Canvas um, because that's where you spend many of your waking hours and, and where your passion is right now. Uh, I know Go Canvas because we've worked together for so long, but I'm curious for all of our listeners, can you talk a little bit about the company? What's the short version? What does Go Canvas enable customers to do? Sure thing. GoCanvas is a SaaS company dedicated to enabling and empowering small to medium businesses that have effectively been left behind through the digital transformation. While digitization has clearly boosted the economy overall, the impact to individual companies has been a little bit more hit and miss. Hmm. As is usually the case, it was bigger companies that benefited from it because they had access to things like software engineers, digital marketers, they had the technical savvy and, and, and the larger budgets to make it all come together to customize their digital processes and workflows. GoCanvas effectively levels the playing field, concentrating on the specific needs of companies with mobile workforces who even today often rely on pen and paper. We've built a simple drag-and-drop tool that allows businesses in any industry to craft their own custom mobile apps, deploy them to their workforce with a single button click, and completely digitize their processes all without them needing to know how to write a single line of code. Mm-hmm. And today, we're expanding that mission beyond that as well. Wow. So you are specifically targeting in this digital economy that long tail, right? Those, those small and medium businesses, it sounds like. What, what a unique market and, and not one you commonly see, right? You, you either see a lot of enterprise and business plays or you see more of the consumer play. Are there unique challenges with that? Yeah, I think there are. You know, I would think that in the small to medium business uh, case of dealing with those types of companies, they kind of have the difficulties and the challenges associated with both of them at the same time. Hmm. I think that's probably why a lot of companies don't pay attention to them as much and they end up being left behind in exactly right. that regard is because they don't have the budgets that you might look for with an enterprise-type customer. And often it's described within product management that trying to go down market mm-hmm. is actually a lot harder than it is to go up market because you've got to make right. things as simple and digestible as you would need to for the consumer side as well. Right, right. Fascinating. Now, you you 
ended up your, you know, opening description of the company by saying, and we're evolving beyond that. Talk about that, especially as it relates, you guys just raised some capital. And so it sounds like you're fueling this, this vision of expanding it. Can, can you talk about where you're going? Yeah, absolutely. I think if you look back at what GoCanvas has historically really been about, it's been about uh, empowering these small to medium businesses by enabling them through mobile technology. Uh, and at the end of the day, the kinds of apps that we see our customers creating for their own purposes are mm -hmm. things that you'd kind of expect in a mobile workforce environment. So mm -hmm. things like time cards, mm -hmm. things like... Uh, inspections or work orders or quotes or invoices. Uh, and so we're kind of like a one-size-fits-all sort of tool that helps them to uh, create exactly the kind of experience they need to customize it to the specific unique needs of their business. But at the end of the day, what that's mostly oriented around is their data collection needs. Oh, right? interesting. You know, as someone's doing the work at your house, maybe a plumber comes over, you can kind of imagine the old world in which they might come over with a, uh, you know, pen and paper and, right. and show up. And, 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 and you know, still do. <laughs> exactly. You know, it's, it's still the case, you know, 90% of the time, that's, right. that's going to be what you'd expect. And so GoCanvas has, has really improved that process for them of data collection. But it's a natural next question to start to ask, what do we do to further enable those businesses by helping them do more with the data that they're collecting? Yeah. So now you're not only helping them with their processes and their data collection, but you're saying, what can we do with it? And um, K1 Investment Management just came in and put more than $100 million into the company because they believed in this mission and that partnership. So take us two, three years down the road. What, what should we expect? Do you have ideas of what that would look like? Yeah, there are tons of ideas. In fact, <laughs> <laughs> too many. It's execution that's the challenge, right? <laughs> the challenge with product management is always prioritizing, right? Uh, so we have we have a lot of different ideas for where we want to go with this. And mm -hmm. you know, one of the obvious ones I think that uh, that you could imagine would be that as soon as you collect all this data across all your customers, uh, suddenly you're going to have this need to run analytics on top of that data. Mm -hmm. And so one of the next tools that we're in the process of putting out there for our customers is the ability for them to uh, look across all their submission data across all mm -hmm. the different forms where they're collecting this information uh, and piece a story together, a narrative that helps them to understand how their business is actually performing, right? Right. Uh, so that's one example. I think, you know, if you wanted to get beyond that, you get into some other examples of how they might use the data that they've been collecting to reimagine what their customers' experience could be as well. And so mm -hmm. if you go back, you know, for example, to that plumber who might be leaving behind a carbon copy of a work order with you, it's great that they digitize through GoCanvas and that, that, that piece of paper turns instead into... Uh, you know, into a digital PDF that they could leave behind. But right. if we wanted to take that a step further, what should happen? You uh -huh. know, what, what we all kind of know should be really the experience here is that person leaves and half an hour later, you get a text alert on your phone saying, how would you rate the quality of service that right. Joe provided? Right. One to five stars. And let's keep going past that. You know, if it's one star, then Joe's manager should be calling, say, hey, you know, what went wrong? How do we make this right for you? Right. But if it was five stars, would you mind reviewing us on Yelp? You know, right, and help right. us, you know, find some more customers. And, and if you do, here's a coupon that you can share on next door with yep. your neighbors because we're trying to grow business in your area. Uh, and then if you do that, then, you know, let's enroll you in a newsletter and give right. you some some coupons uh, that that you can use for your own sake for the pipe winterization program that we're going to start running, you know? And so right. you sort of imagine what they can do in terms of 
improving their customer relationships right. in terms of making a safer work environment in, right. inside for their own employees. Uh, and the list goes on for all these kinds of opportunities that they have to right. further utilize the data that we've helped them to uh, to collect. You know, it's interesting. I'm, I'm seeing a trend here in how you are helping small businesses digitize and, and really play in this digital economy compared to what we've seen large enterprises and middle market companies do. Typically, most companies start by automation and operational efficiency, and then they start to work out towards actually digital products and interfaces with their customers. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like you're going down that exact same path of really helping these SMBs to figure out how do we begin to leverage this incredible data asset that we now have to monetize and commercialize and productize in new different ways. Yeah, that's right. You've got to start with a data asset in the first place. You know, yeah. the, the value proposition can be there for everything else. And I think in many ways, that's uh, that's the the attraction for companies to work with a Go Canvas mm -hmm. uh, is because they realize that they have uh, so many different things they could be doing with this data today. Right. If only they had it in a digital format, you know, available within the cloud, right. where they actually had the metadata on top, you know, on top of it, where they knew exactly what the data itself actually meant. Right. Then they're in a position to be able to do a lot of things with it. But it's really that starting point that's really hard for a lot of these businesses to overcome initially. For sure. For sure. Okay, so with that, we, we're talking ideas already because we're ideas guys, but you've got a really cool title that allows you to think about these ideas and then execute on them. Uh, Chief Product Officer, do you mind telling us a little bit about how do you see that role? What are the important functions of it? And, you know, it's interesting. It, it's, it's a relatively new title for a lot of folks that haven't grown up in the software product world. So just give us a little bit of color. How do you see that? Well, let's start with with what the role of product management itself actually is. Yeah. And and I think it's important to start there. So the role of product management, in the words that I would use, I would say is to make the product successful in the market, period. And I use those words very specifically. So making the product successful in the market, period. So let's let, let's look at this. Successful. What mm -hmm. are the success metrics in the first place? Mm -hmm. How are you as, gonna, as a company going to define that success? How will your customers define success in using your product? Mm -hmm. um, those are all really important questions to ask. In terms of the market, what target market are you trying to serve? Who's your target customer? What are the personas that are out there that you're trying to des design for? Uh, what are the competitor products that are out there that you need to be differentiated against? And why are mm -hmm. they going to want to use yours versus something else? Right. Uh, what's the nature of the solution that you're trying to create for them? And, and what's the pricing look like for that? And then if you look at the final word, period, <laughs> it means the, you know, that means you got to do whatever it takes. I mean, right. It means that the, you're never done, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that there are no excuses for, right. uh, for you know, a lack of success. Right. Um, you have to find a way to, to, to break through that. And so perseverance, I think, is one thing that's really important within product management in general. Right. But you're sort of the ultimate person in the organization to have to persevere through some of the challenges that you might face as yeah. you're trying to develop the product. I mean, that, that phrase that you just used is so key. They're never done, right? The, the changing expectations of products, um, it's just, it's always happening. There's always churn. Uh, customers always want more. They want better um, or they've changed their ideas. And mm -hmm. so that navigation in the market, I see that as such a key thing in that product management function. Yeah, that's right. And, and there are a lot of things that that you know you can point to as a product manager to you know 
to excuse why your results aren't as good as you would like them to be. Right. Uh, you know, I didn't have enough engineers. You know, I'm going up ahead, you know, uh, up against Google and they've got, you know, tens of thousands of engineers. How am I going to go beat them? Well, you got to find a way through that. You know, maybe yeah. what that means is you build APIs and create a great developer ecosystem and have access to millions of engineers, right? right. So that might be the solution. Or right. you might say, hey, you know, we're in this very crowded space. Uh, what can I do to better differentiate my product? And maybe the answer is, you know, uh, you could do some things right now and there are certain models that you can apply to try to figure that out. But you also might say, if only I had this data asset that I could leverage today to create differentiation tomorrow. Well, at the CPO level, what that means is that it is your obligation to think those several moves ahead Mm -hmm. and to say, okay, well, I've got to go build the products today. I've got to go build the features and the capabilities for my customers so that as they're using our product, they're going to be creating a proprietary data asset for us that we will then be able to intentionally leverage down the road yep. to go beat the you know that 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 wide competition uh, in the market that we're trying to go win. So is that the key thing that you would use to differentiate product management and maybe a VP of product from a chief product officer? Is this visionary aspect and this strategic area playing the chessboard? I want to be three four moves ahead. I've got to build the data asset and that that visionary component. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, that's that's number one. And then I would I would say that there's a second piece to this as well, which is just as a member of of the executive team, when you ever have a C in front of your title, no matter mm-hmm. whether that's marketing or sales or engineering or product, um, I think that what differentiates it is you're effectively taking a, a chunk of the responsibilities that the CEO has, mm-hmm. and they're effectively delegated to you as well, right? Mm-hmm. It's not to say that, that the CEO doesn't have a, an accountability to those things as well, but it's that they're sort of entrusting you to take that element of it. And so, yes, strategically, you know, it means that that we need to uh, to think about those, those things, but it, it, it goes beyond that as well. And so, for product, what are all the things that are on the periphery of product that start mm-hmm. to affect the success or failure of product? So, pricing, for example, is a good sure. example of, of something that spans across product and sales and mm-hmm. marketing and product marketing. Sure. And so, I don't take at face value the pricing that we have. Right. I evaluate the prices that we have, and I look at the structure behind it, and I kind of evaluate, does the product and its... Uh, its features and functions that we've tied to different pricing tiers actually make sense for our customer base. Right. Uh, and that's something that I have to have accountability for myself in addressing if there are opportunities or challenges that we need to overcome on that front. Yeah. You, you know what dovetails with that for me is when I think about the C-suite um, and those executive level positions, I also think about you are now leading the company, you're not leading a department. Um, it's not a silo of the organization. Your job is to integrate and influence across the entire business. And as you just talked about doing that with product, you mentioned sales and marketing and all these other functions that are intricately involved with product and and you need to be successful in product and product needs you or they need you as product to be successful as well. Um, And so that that sounds like an element of it too. It's not just the responsibilities, but it's the integration of all of the different departments around the company around everything product. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's that's 100% right. Uh, and one one good kind of anecdote here would be from Go Canvas. We decided at the same time that I was being hired that we were going to do that at the same time as transitioning ourselves to being what we internally refer to as a product first company. Oh, interesting. And so that was a cultural shift that what and that wasn't a thing that that James Quigley our CEO uh, talked about with the product team. Mm-hmm. It's something he talked about with every member of the team, right? Across right. every single department because we wanted to make sure that there was clear alignment on what that actually meant. Interesting. Uh, and so what that led to ultimately was a couple months after I had joined that I wanted to have a, a meeting across the whole entire company. And we led an all-hands 
90-minute session to talk about what does it mean for us to make that transition to being a product-first company. And it means some things that you're going to really like, and it means some (laughs) things you're probably not going to like. You know, if if you're a, a salesperson and you're used to just sort of saying, hey, I'm trying to go win this deal... Uh, let's go build the the feature that this customer is asking for is simply because I'm trying to win a deal. Well, that's that's what sales driven means. Right. That's what sales first means. And so that transition here is to say, the way that we're going to operate, the way that we're going to make decisions, is by yes talking to our customers and yes really trying to understand what their needs are, but not limiting ourselves to let's go build exactly those things that's going to you know drive the next sale so that we can hit the numbers this quarter. Mm-hmm. It's thinking more forward about what can I do with product development that will make it so that the sales team is willing to mm-hmm. sign up for numbers that are maybe two or three times higher than what they even thought would be possible. Because the product is that awesome. Exactly. You know, right. one, one to two years from now. Right. And, and, and that's what the focus of the company is going to be. And so, yes, we may do some of those one-off little, you know, features and idiosyncratic, you know, improvements for, for individual sure. companies. Um, but those are going to be more the exception. What we're going to focus on instead is the definition of a product-first vision uh-huh. for where we can go. And to focus our attention on the product roadmap on on uh, executing that strategy to go get us there. That's great. I, I love how tightly you uh, articulated that because I, I hear this struggle a lot. You hear about sales-driven cultures, product-driven cultures, technology-driven cultures, mm-hmm. right? And and I think that that product-driven culture is so important in this digital age to really understand what is the digital product that you're building? How does it meet your customers' needs? Not just in terms of what they're asking for, but what they actually need. Because so often those things are totally different, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we've talked about the definition of a CPO, but who needs one? Like, I would guess that a lot of our listeners don't actually have a chief product officer. If you were to step back and advise them, how do they know when they need one? Yeah, th- this question came up many times when I was advising a lot of companies um, and still do sometimes <laughs> to this day. The question that I would ask in return to those same companies who are asking me is to say, uh, well, what are you looking for that person to actually achieve? Mm. A lot of times what they describe is sometimes even a junior product, a manager, product manager, believe it or not. They're just, <laughs> sure. well, I need somebody to make decisions about what's going to go into the next sprint. And right. you know, three weeks from now, <laughs> okay, well, I don't think you need a chief product officer. You know, right. What I think you need is somebody who can who can roll up the sleeves and, and get in there and make smart decisions on a day-to-day basis. That, I mean, that's what product yep. managers do is prioritize all day long. Right. But the CPO is somebody who's a member of the executive team. And, and like I said before, uh, it means that the CEO is willing to delegate some of the product strategy work. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times in the earlier stage of a startup, the product manager, the product visionary is the founder, period. I mean, that's that's where the company starts. There's no distinction between company strategy and product strategy. And if there's no distinction, then why do you need two cooks in the kitchen? Why don't you just have one person who's defining that? I think it's what, what happens is at some point, the CEO wakes up one day, usually Mm -hmm. it's after Series A funding or, you know, Series B in certain cases and says, I find myself now in a position where I've got a company to run and I can't think about that stuff anymore and I need someone to kind of take that on. And there's a whole host of other kinds of questions that you might ask, like whether it's actually a product-driven culture versus an engineering-driven culture. You know, maybe what you need is a CTO, not a CPO. Or maybe what you need is a CRO, you know, instead of a CPO as well. Sure. So it depends on the stage of the company and and the nature of of how they want to be making decisions, I think. Um, But it also has a lot to do with um, the role that the founder wants to play versus the kinds of decisions that they're willing and able to delegate. Sure, sure. That makes a lot of sense. Um, Now, there's an aspect of that we didn't hit on, which is 
I think that answer is great for software companies, right? If you're a SaaS company, great. We're seeing more and more that all businesses are becoming software companies. Mm -hmm. Have you ever applied that thinking to somebody in the retail industry, somebody in media, somebody in any type of business? Do they need chief product officers? It's a great question. And and to be totally honest, I I don't know that I know the answer to that 100%. Uh Um, What I would say is they need the C-level person who aligns with how they want to drive the company. So right. let's take an apparel company, right? Okay. You know, they they would probably be more marketing-led, I would think, mm-hmm. right? So you mm-hmm. know, Prada is going to be a marketing-led company. Nike, I can't imagine that there's anybody at Nike who says, you know, we just imagine this this amazing product. Right. If I could just find some damn place to put that swoosh, that would, you know, that would be great. Um, right. you know, it kind of goes the other way around, right? And, and right. so at a company like that, you need those uh, very senior executives to kind of drive strategy uh, through the one gear mm-hmm. that all the other gears in the organization are going to be driven from. Right, right. right. Um, and that's not to say that you don't need several executives in, in several different types of, you know, positions for that. You know, you might need a, a COO and, and, and yep. other kinds of roles as well. So at, at the product level, perhaps if it's a large enough company, there would be something to that. Sure. Um, especially if they're really trying to make a big push into the software space. Yep. I think, you know, to think about things like how do we craft data assets that we can then use down the road. Right. That's usually a fairly advanced kind of, you know, topic uh, to get into. Um, and so you want somebody who, who you can trust to make those good decisions. At the same time, though, is that depending on the stage of company that you're at, actually what you really need right now? Or do you need somebody who can just execute and get things done? Right. You know, And if that's the case, then maybe you don't need necessarily that CPO or even sometimes the VP of product is, might be right. too, too extreme as well. Maybe a product manager, to your point. The, the other thing that I see, I think, sometimes is that the definition of product in these companies is so wildly different than just the software world. So you use Nike as an example. Their products are sneakers, right? They're sweatshirts, Mm -hmm. right? Those are their products in their mind. But what's really happening is more and more of those products are becoming digital or digitally enabled, right? And I think that's where you see the advent of the chief digital officer or some of these other um, titles that it's not the product, but it's essential that you start to embed that thinking. Yeah, I I think that's totally true. It's funny because we were just shopping with my son who's really into shoes. Uh, (laughs) He's 13-year-old and and, and he's really excited about this this new shoe that I think it was Nike that just kind of came out with it where you can use your phone to really? connect to your shoe and it kind of puffs it up more or you know, <laughs> to, to change the size because I guess uh-huh. as you play sports, your your foot swells. Okay. So it's actually like a, a big deal. And so he thought it was the coolest thing ever. And right. to me, it seemed a little bit, you know, kitschy. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but but I, I, I can see how you might think about the digitization of, of products and just about everything is going in that direction. But Nike right. also has plenty of other things. I mean, they've, you know, they've got the bands that you wear, right. you know, give you information about your heart rate and your, for sure. uh, you know, calories and, and things like that too. So, um, so maybe in that case, if, if that's a direction that they want to go and that's a key right. element of their strategy, then do they need a CPO? Yep. Almost certainly, yeah. Yeah. All right. So we've talked about title. Where is it relevant? We, we've talked about this concept of ideas and what does the, the chief product officer do in terms of vision and strategy. Let's get a little tactical for a moment. When you're looking at how your teams are executing and how you as a company are driving against that vision, what are you looking at in terms of metrics? What KPIs should organizations be looking at in regards to their products? I think it's really, this is really important, which is that as a product person, you don't get the 
opportunity. You don't get the, uh, the you know, the, the allowance to step away from the standard business metrics that are out there. Hmm. Just like everybody else, just like everybody in marketing or sales, you know, you've got to tie yourself to revenue. You've yeah. got to tie yourself to conversion. You've got to tie yourself to, to reach. Um, these are critical metrics that every executive needs to adopt and, and have complete alignment and adherence around. Mm-hmm. So in product, I, I pay attention to a lot of the same kinds of things that the other executives at the company will pay attention to. And in our case, that might be uh, gross margin payback period. Or, mm-hmm. you know, some other SaaS companies might look at CAC to LTV ratio as an mm-hmm. example of that. Uh, we look at ARPA, kind of average revenue per account. We look at retention. We look, look at conversion rate. Uh, and, and the list goes on. Right. Um, those are the top-level metrics, though. And there's yep. an important element to, to the way that these play out within product mm-hmm. as well. So while those are the ones that we want to pay the most attention to, and we're going to measure our success or failure based on whether we drove those metrics in the right direction, mm-hmm. The issue is it's really hard to measure whether product had is doing a good job right. or doing a poor job uh, because those metrics may take a long time to, to deliver results upon right. or maybe something that's really hard to measure because so many other things change over that same time period. How do you know whether it was the product change that you made that drove that outcome or was it, you know, better training of the sales team? You right. know, maybe totally that's what different. drove it, you know, as well. Right. And, and that's also affecting conversion. So there's there's a way in which you can do this, though. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's relatively sophisticated, but one of the things that I've found to be an, a very important uh, function for product is to define not only the success metrics that you're trying to drive, but to define the metrics that are much easier to uh, to measure mm-hmm. and the ones that are much uh, faster to measure as well mm-hmm. uh, that then correlate with those long-term business metrics that you're trying to move. And by doing that, you can then attribute product changes that you make to business outcomes that you deliver against. Um, a great example of this, right, is, is we all know that retention within the SaaS business is very often a function of the quality of the onboarding experience that a customer gets early on, usually right. in the first 30 days. right. So you could measure the NPS mm-hmm. 30 days in. And if you draw that there's a correlation between that metric and what you see in terms of retention two years down the road, then you may say, well, if I want to drive retention, because NPS by itself doesn't have any direct kind of like business outcome. Right. But indirectly, we know that it does have that outcome. Um, then we could try to quantify what the impact is that we can have. If we can say, hey, we can dial up NPS by five points right. after 30 days then this cohort of customers who aren't going to even be possible to churn for another year, right. you know, we sort of expect that these are the outcomes that we're going to see down the road. And that way we can actually generate an ROI uh-huh. on product development activity, which right. is a really critical thing, I think, at especially the CPO level, right. to be able to provide to the CEO, to the CFO, to the board, and right. so on. Right, right. So you listed a lot of metrics there. You talked about a couple <laughs> lag measures, some... What do you if think I took started? all your toys away, <laughs> let me take all your toys away. If I made you pick one that you said you could not live without, like it, it's either the first one you look at in the morning or it's the one you would panic if I didn't let you look at. Can you pick one? Do you have any idea what that would be? Yeah, in a SaaS company, it's retention. Okay, yeah. Straight up. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, that, that that says, you know, are are you getting the value? Everything else is, is uh, let's say conversion. Mm-hmm. Do they believe that they're going to get the value? Yeah. Right. Um, you know, retention kind of captures it all. Right. Uh, uh, <laughs> are they seeing the value after using the product for some period of time? Right. Um, are they willing to pay the price that you wanted to charge? Do the unit economics actually make sense? Right. And I think you know you can find plenty of companies that are out there that have failed because uh, because they have poor retention numbers. Right. It's, like, it's like you know trying to to. 
uh, you know, make progress in a boat that's got a big leak in it. Right. It's just, you're not right. going to get anywhere. Yeah. You may market well, you may have a great value proposition, but do you actually deliver on that and, and build loyalty from your customers because you're solving a real need, right? Right. Yeah. Interesting. Now, the other thing I love about your answer is that you actually phrased it as in a SaaS company. And I would say that's the other thing about key metrics is that they have to be associated with the actual strategy, mm-hmm. right? And, and in a SaaS company, the strategy is all about retention and a service fee over time, right? And so um, I love that correlation between the number and the strategy. Right. I mean, there's a lot of companies for whom, you know, retention isn't even a metric that matters at all. You know, right. You're a B2C company that's delivering a free product and you're, you know, doing, <laughs> you're monetizing through ads. Great. There is no retention. Who cares? You know, it, right, does, right. it doesn't exist. Yeah. Um, that's a great point. So let, let me shift gears a little bit because this starts to get into um, this idea of a shared mindset on your team, right? Getting people thinking in the same direction, understanding what they're doing, what you're trying to build. Um, and, and it's one of the philosophies we talk about a lot here at Three Pillar, um, really understanding what is different about a software product versus other types of software and how you have to think differently um, about it. Uh, because we we think that in order to build product successfully, you can't be focused just on measuring success by time and budget. Um, th- there's so much more to product. And you've mentioned it. It was fascinating just listening to you talk. It's, you know, you've got to know revenue matters in a product world. You're driving (laughs) revenue, right? Like that primacy you stressed early on. You talked about customer need of actually understanding your customers and building to that. And you you said that products are never done, right? They're always having to evolve. Those are the three tenants that we see as fundamentally different. And we think that you have to think differently because of that than you otherwise would. Can you expand upon that a little bit and how you have created a shared mindset around the products you're building at GoCanvas? You're, first of all, you're absolutely right. I think it's it's paramount for any product-led company to actually have the the sense of where you're headed and be <laughs> able to share that sense of where you're headed, um, you know, with the rest of the company. Not again, not just within the product team or the UX team, but across the entire company, so that everybody's kind of on board with that. Um, so you're right about the importance of having a really strong product mindset. I'll say this. I think there's a very large graveyard of startups <laughs> in Silicon Valley uh, and, and everywhere, and everywhere else. else. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> um, who, who, cons- who consistently delivered on time and on budget. The problem is it just delivered on totally the wrong things. It's kind of like in this world of self-driving cars, I sort of imagine this car that's like, perfectly in between the lines and and drives exactly the speed limit and just drives straight into a brick wall. It's kind right. of like, you know, who cares if you're kind of like, you know, going in the wrong in the wrong place, right? right. And so you, you have to know where you're headed and craft um, a clear message about what your what your course is for how mm-hmm. you're going to go, go about getting there. What are the milestones that we're going to see along the way? Mm-hmm. How will we know whether we're on track? Yep. And and the way that I've built this at Go Canvas um, and, and what I think is the manifestation of product mindset for us is this product vision and strategy document that we've kind of put a lot of time and energy to uh, to, to putting together as a team, which details all sorts of things. It goes into, it starts with a customer perspective and says, mm-hmm. what is the customer journey? What right. does that success path look like for our customers today? Right. How's that going to shift over time to what's that's going to look like three years from now? Mm-hmm. Um, what are the key improvements that we need to make to our product to achieve that? 
what are the metrics that we're going to see along the way that's that's going to be an indication that we're on track for this? And and to answer some of the questions that maybe even an investor would ask, even if we're right. not going and, and getting fundraising, we should sure. know for our own sake, right? You know, why us? Right. Why now? Mm-hmm. Why, you know, what what puts us in the unique position to do this? What are going to be our differentiators? And it really kind of outlines, you know, this this whole thing to, to pull together a single cohesive narrative mm. that anybody in the company can look at to get a sense as to how is product actually leading? What is this product mindset that we have? Mm-hmm. And I think that if you think about it uh, on a daily basis for how this helps somebody who's maybe in an operational role, like you know, uh, customer success or, or right. a salesperson, they're always going to come with these kind of what seems often to product people as arbitrary requests, right? <laughs> uh, but they're not, and 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 they're and they're trying to 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 be successful with with whether you know the, hitting the metrics that they need to hit, right? But a lot of times they come with those requests because they don't know what's being sacrificed in order to to go accommodate those mm-hmm. things. And a lot of times product management gets in trouble because they're playing defense in a company. Right. And they're kind of like, no, we can't do this. And, and well, that's an interesting idea, but sorry, we're backlogged with a bunch of tech debt right now. And nobody qu- really quite understands it. And it seems like, I, you know, product management is in this ivory tower. Right. And that they just kind of make all these calls. And it seems to them... Like product is the one that's being arbitrary, right? And that's and that's because the reason you have to play a lot of defense like that as a product person is because you don't have a good offense, right? And the offense is saying, "Here's where we're headed. Right. Come along for this ride. Right. You know, come come with me on this. Ask questions if you're if you're unclear. Uh, let's have a conversation about this." And so, one of the things that I'm going to be starting next quarter. Uh, is a luncheon with all new team members. Because oh, wow. we're growing constantly. We're, we're right. always hiring new people. So I want them to read the document. I want them uh-huh. to understand it. And then if they have questions or concerns or things they disagree with, I want to have a luncheon with them so that we can talk about it and so that they know that I'm accessible right. to them um, to make sure that we're all you know, completely uh, adhering to this one single unified vision that we have. Right. The other word that comes to mind when you say arbitrary, and you used it on both sides, right? The impression. <laughs> I think of often the job of um, the product management is not just priorities, like you said, but trade-offs, mm-hmm. right? Every single decision we make is a trade-off mm-hmm. of to choose something, to go on offense, you have to be defensive about something else, right? It's the old adage that focuses what you say no to, mm-hmm. not what you say yes to. Yeah, there's a, there's a you know, great Steve Jobs quote, right? Is innovation is saying no to a thousand things. Right. And I think that's, that's exactly right. Yeah, so so important and so many of us lose it, right? Because we're, we're ideas people. We like new ideas and the shiny objects. That's right. <laughs> uh, so let's get into some nitty gritty on product innovation itself. Uh, it's a topic we hear a lot about and executives like me, and I, I assume James Quigley as well, um, are constantly pushing our teams for more of it. Um, it's the buzzword today, right? Mm-hmm. And everybody seems to need it. In your experience, is it an art is it a science? Is it some of both? Or is it something totally different that I've missed the mark on? <laughs> uh, product management is both an art and a science straight up. Okay. Uh, anyone who tells you otherwise is selling you something <laughs> or, or they're an idiot or, or both, you know. Um, but uh, but I, I would say, you know, in my experience, I've been doing product for a little over 20 years now. And I'd say in the last 10, 15 years, um, product management has overall gone in a really good direction uh-huh. um, of becoming much more scientific. You know, yeah. back in the day when I was learning, you know, the ropes and I was a young 20-something <laughs> and, and trying to figure things out, I, I kind of felt like product management was, you, know, you make all the calls about what engineering is going to work on, but you kind of do it mostly from the gut. From gut, not data. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and you, you know, you might talk to customers here and there, uh, <laughs> and you might talk to a few engineers here and there on each 
try to piece together a, a story, but a lot of times it's just you know based on what you think is the right thing to do. And and, and the, the 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 hard reality that hey, if anybody you know is listening who's a product person, <laughs> you know it's not about you. Uh, right. There's no reason you're not smarter than the engineer who who's time you're trying to prioritize. Right. They're just as smart as you are. In fact, they're probably a hell of a lot smarter than <laughs> right. you are, right? To, to get to do that kind of work. Um, what what makes you in a position to be able to do that is because you've had the, uh, you're well-versed in the skill set right. about how to do the analysis to figure out what the right decisions are to make, mm-hmm. that you're seeking information from the right places, and that you have the time afforded to you to go to go do that. So I'm glad that, that product management has become more scientific, more data-driven. And you see this with, with A-B testing methodologies and with agile development, which is all about, you know, make an incremental improvement, measure what the outcomes are, see if you need to pivot, et cetera. Right. Um, but here's the thing. I think that it's gone too far, mm. to be totally honest. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I see that all you know hundreds of blog posts written about the only way you can possibly know what to do or or the direction that you should go uh, is to ab test the hell out of everything <laughs> right. and, and here's the problem that here's the thing that I don't like about it, ab testing is it tells you what works and it tells you absolutely zero about why mm-hmm. and if you don't understand why if mm-hmm. you don't understand why your customers are clicking on one thing or versus something else it's not just about orange buttons versus green <laughs> buttons and things like that it's about building a customer experience that matches the mental models of your customers. It's mm-hmm. about uh, helping them to overcome their fears and their anxieties and to to build, you know, strong relationships and trust with them. Right. Um, and so the the question that I ask in a lot of the advisory work that I've done is, it's great that you guys do a lot of A-B testing, but how do you know what you're going to A-B test next? Mm-hmm. And if you don't have a good sense as to why your customers are using your product or what kinds of things they're trying to achieve with your product, mm-hmm. um, you're never really going to get a good sense of that. And if you don't get a good sense of that, then then you're sort of just aimlessly testing and experimenting. And that's right. great for optimization. You can yep. still optimize things really well, but you're never going to optimize yourself into a, the new product that's mm-hmm. going to be the big kind of like breakthrough the change. Breakthrough, you, know? Yeah. you know, we... we we didn't opt- optimize horses to get cars, and we didn't right. optimize cars to get airplanes. I mean, wh- what would happen if the Wright brothers had failed fast? <laughs> you know, like they <laughs> failed how many times, right? right. And, and and so they had all the evidence in the world with you know real tried and true things that flight wasn't going to work their way, right? And yet it was their perseverance, it was their steadfast resolve, right, uh, and their belief that this was something that that was going to work, right. Um, and so it's an interesting balance, I think, you know, both for CEOs and founders, yeah. as well as for for product people to whom those decisions are delegated. Where do you focus on the data, yep. and where do you sort of piece together the things that you've seen from 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 other data sources and come up with beliefs, mm-hmm. and then move in that direction? You know, that, so so I've started to see some more blog posts that have kind of started to go in, in the last couple of years mm-hmm. back in the other direction, kind of like more right. towards the middle. Which, thankfully, I think is is a really good thing. And, and one of the best ones that I read out there said this. Uh, if you can validate your product vision, then you're not thinking big enough. <laughs> and I say, damn right. I like that. I like that quote a lot. Yeah, that's fascinating. So, people that couldn't validate their own vision uh, was Edison, the Wright brothers. <laughs> uh, you brought up the car, right? Henry Ford. Who's your favorite innovator? <laughs> Who do you really draw from and get inspiration from? Uh, great question. You know, I. Uh, so I actually live on Edison Street. <laughs> it's <laughs> so hard not to say that. Of Edison all the time. But here's the thing: as as a product practitioner, the reason I say Edison, I would say, is not because of the specific inventions themselves. Right. Um, it's because he built a process around innovating. Yeah. And and if you think it's about all the innovations that he had, it was 
building a process around innovation what was sort right. of like itself the, that's very you know, meta yeah it, it really is and, I, and i'm all about that right so uh so so i like that that one a lot i guess i guess the, the only other answer that i could possibly think of uh is just you know the the, the all-time great of leonardo da vinci yeah uh, sure true genius right like the world's never seen before right. my my favorite edison quote is his one about failure right mm-hmm. when he was asked right how demoralizing it was to you know fail However many times was it a thousand times or yeah. whatever the final light bulb and and he said uh, what did he say he said something like uh, I, I never failed I just found a thousand ways that wouldn't work <laughs> right? like, yeah wow. exactly that, what an awesome right yeah. that's just that's that resolve you were talking about right exactly. the persistence uh, that's important yeah. all right so we've we've talked a lot about users at different points but never poignantly um, we we've brought up user testing A B testing we've talked about the needs of users um, and. I know not everybody likes that word too. So I'll get more descriptive. The people who are using or might be interested in your product, where do they fit into the innovation process? Mm-hmm. Um, other than at the receiving end, right? And, and you're getting feedback from them, but how do you look at this entire innovation process? And at what points do you see it as critical that they're in it, that they're out of it? How do you think about those individuals? Let's see. Well, <laughs> uh, remember that graveyard of companies uh, who <laughs> delivered on time and on budget? Well, I think I think there's probably two adjacent cemeteries that are out there. Uh, you know, one of them one of them is is on one extreme. It's those companies who never listen to their customers. Obviously, they just ignore them. Right? And, and and there are companies that I've look I've worked at them. <laughs> yep. Unfortunately, uh, but there are those companies that never listen to their customers, and they're kind of doomed to fail. I mean, yeah. you don't understand your customer base. You don't understand your market. You're trying to build technology that has no particular purpose in society. It's not going to get you anywhere. Yeah. Uh, but there's another one out there as well. And that's the company that that only listens to their customers yes. and, and only, you know, does exactly what their customers are asking for. And people think that because they're sort of customer driven in that regard, right. that that means they're being innovative. Yep. And, I, and I'm going to challenge that. I don't think yep. that they're being innovative when they do that at all. I think that your customers... That, that's just seeding innovation to your customer base, saying, yeah. you tell us the next feature that you want, we'll just go ahead and add that. Right. But customers are going to think incrementally about what it is that that they're trying to do better with your software. What would make it easier for them? What's the one feature that I wish you had that I currently have to have a workaround for? Mm-hmm. And you can do that all day long. But the thing is, you could build, we'll keep using this number, a thousand, uh, <laughs> a thousand of those uh, of those things. And as soon as you're done, you're just going to find that there's another thousand of those things. You, right. you, you know, you're never done uh, right. making incremental improvements to an existing product. Um, and it's a recipe for being leapfrogged mm-hmm. by somebody else. Like that, that's sure. how it's gonna. That's how it's gonna manifest, and you're gonna die a really fast death a mm-hmm. couple of years from now. Right. Um, so, so you don't want to let that happen either. And so, I, I would say this, which is, you've got to have a regular cadence upon which you're talking to your customers, mm-hmm. understanding the kinds of things that they need. And there's there's tons of writing on this, so I'm probably not going to get into the weeds on it too much. Um, but as a product team, you need to make sure that you're talking to not only um, your customers, but talk to your non-customers. Hmm. Right? It's, it is, it's amazing how often this gets forgotten about. Right. I don't want to find out from the customer who's been a customer for me for, for six years and loves my product <laughs> right. what they want next. They already love my product. Right. right. How do I get the next one? Yeah, That's well, what I, I want. The person who hates my product and and, and right. goes with a competitor. And I think for for some reason it's just maybe it's just um, confirmation bias that we all have. Uh, That's a good point. Where we're just trying to talk to the people who we think are going to you know love it and, and tell right. us that it's all fine. And the reality is we want to find out those those people who who are frustrated or confused. Used. Yep. Um, keep in mind that there's always this silent majority of your customer base that you're trying to reach out to that 
isn't going to talk to you. They're not going to be willing to invest the five minutes on the phone to even speak to you, right? So what you need to do is pull people who are part of your target market Mm -hmm. off the street if you have to and talk to them, not in the middle of a sales presentation, not as part of a customer advisory board. You know, talk to the the real, you know, people that are out there that are part of your target market um, and then ask them all the right kinds of questions. You know, don't don't introduce the bias. There's a lot of, you know, prescriptive ways that I could recommend that, you know, that, that a company does this. But, but at the end of the day, it's really about coming up with not what their recommended solutions are, mm-hmm. but asking why enough times until you finally identify the problem it is mm-hmm. that they're looking for you to solve. Right. And then you are op- you're opening the door to innovation right. because you can then figure out what the best solution might be that then does those things that we talked about earlier, like create the data assets that you might need three years from now. Right. Your customers aren't going to tell you that they want you to solve their problem in a way that's going to enable you to do AI down the road. Right. But you know as the product person that that's a thing that you need to do. And so you want to come up with the the right answer to solve their problem that's not just right for them now, mm-hmm. but it's right for you and your future target market yeah. several years down the road. I, I love what you just said. It's right for you and your target market. Because we often find that true innovation comes from that intersection of customer need and the business need as well. Mm-hmm. And it goes back to the point you made early on about driving revenue, gaining your market share, right? Do you know what you're going after? If it's not successful for both, it's not going to build enough momentum to truly innovate and do the leap leapfrog move mm-hmm. instead of just these iterative improvements, right? That's right. All right. So we've got to wrap up, uh, unfortunately, because this has been a lot of fun. But um, you've mentioned a couple times being a junior product manager, and the reality is you cut your teeth at eBay. I'm curious, what did you learn? What are, what's a lesson or two from eBay that you've carried with you that you can share with us? Uh, there are so many. Uh, <laughs> you know, it was it was such a great place to be, such an amazing uh, time. I was there from 2001 to 2005, and it was kind of the golden era of, of eBay's growth post right. uh, post IPO. So I had the privilege of being hired uh, by Marty Kagan, who's who's kind of like the godfather of right. product management. He, he kind of invented modern product management, right? And so to get to learn from him for the first several years of How my career, awesome. I mean, you know, great Couldn't great experience. Um, that said, th- there weren't you know we didn't do everything right, and, right. and there there are two there are two things that that I would point to of, of real learnings, but they both center around the same, the same overall thesis, which is that it's so important to understand the inner workings at an intimate level of how your product actually works. Like, why do your customers like it? Hmm. Why do they dislike it? Why do they keep coming back? And if you don't have a really thorough understanding of that, two things can go really yeah. <laughs> uh, one of them is that you can you can be stifled. Mm-hmm. You, can, you can you can be sort of like dead where you don't know where to go next. Mm-hmm. Um, that's actually the least of the, of the worst. The other ones you can go down a very bad and dark path for the company. Mm-hmm. Um, and and sometimes uh, you can unravel your own success. And you see companies who, who do this kind of thing all the time. So I'll share two stories. I'd love to hear. Them. Yeah. So so the first one uh, is the story of uh, of the product council and the secret sauce. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So so at eBay back at this is the time when. Amazon was sort of on the rise. eBay okay. was already there, and we we were the bigger company of of the two, right? right. And so Amazon was was on the rise, and we were kind of wondering, you know, what do we need to do to out innovate them? Right. And we, uh, as product managers, we had a pretty large team. We had to come up with all these different kinds of ideas, ways of improving the buying experience, the selling experience, et cetera. And the thing that that we were always surprised by was why customers would choose to buy something on eBay for a higher price. <laughs> 
<laughs> than it was available on Amazon with kind of arguably a, a, a poor, you know, buying experience. Right. Uh, and then, and then, you know, not even be assured that they're going to get it because they're, it's an auction where they might still get outbid by somebody <laughs> else. And yet this was still happening all the time. And, and wow. so we never really quite understood exactly why. And so we refer to it internally as uh-huh. it's eBay's secret sauce. <laughs> and here's the problem with that analogy is that you know, a secret sauce is, is a recipe that that you know that you actually understand, <laughs> but your customers and, and, and you know and your competitors don't know. But if you don't know it yourself, then what happens is every time that we would present something, we had, we had to present to this large product council, and it would be you know twenty executives <laughs> who could all poo poo an idea, and they could basically just raise their hand and say, "I think this violates the secret sauce." <laughs> That's great, and it, and it was the end of the conversation because right. it was like, "Oh, well, you don't want to do that," right? But nobody could ever answer exactly what it was, and so right. product managers sort of felt like you know they they were stuck in many right. ways, not being able to to innovate. And in the meantime, wow. while we were worried mm-hmm. about what might happen if we did the following things, right. Amazon was out there just making crazy changes to, the, to their, you know, cranking. they used to sell everything themselves, then they opened it up to third-party sellers, and then they, right. you know, uh, promoted cheaper items from other sellers on their own pages. And, right. you know, they, they did all these, these amazing uh, kinds of things within their product that, that you know, were, were extremely bold and aggressive moves for their own business. Right. That for us, you know, we were a little bit, uh, a little bit more reserved, like wor- worried, but that's because we didn't really understand things yeah. at, at the level that I think, you know, you even hear Jeff Bezos talk about it now in terms of being being the most product or the most customer centric company in the world, right? right? And that's because they really had a clear understanding of what their customers oh. were there for, what they were looking for, and so yeah. they, they built around that. Interesting. And, and I'm I'm curious. This is a little bit of a tangent, but I'm fascinated by the story. Do you think that the secret sauce there was the early days of gamification? That it was something to do with the fact that I might not win and I want to win. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I think it is. I, I think yeah. actually they 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 loved the game. Mm-hmm. They loved that aspect of it. Um, I think that people. Uh, the other the other uh, thing that that we were the one of the first to do was to build a, a personal a personal score. I mean, you had right. you had a rating, right? right. And, and right. the count of the number of items that you had bought, the number of items that you had sold, where you had a positive review and things like that. I mean, people. Huh. We're nuts about this. We we used to do these <laughs> these uh, annual conferences, and okay. we get you know ten thousand people to show up to these things, and we gave them a pin that was based on what level of you know seller they were, and how many stars like they had, and then and and how people wore these with the pride that they had. Wow, it was absolutely unbelievable! Like huh. you know that was really uh, amazing to see, and and so I think I think you're totally right on uh, at least a major part of it. Yeah, you know, came from that. I'm that's not sure if that's the whole thing, but, but sure, it's it's certainly part of it. That's best. Um, the second story that I'll uh, that I'll tell is is the one of uh, of what I'll call a seller vacation hold. Okay, so at the company um, at, at eBay, we uh, had this constant tension because, of course, we never had enough engineers, and we always had a <laughs> lot of ideas. I mean, we had thousands of them, but it right. still was never enough. It's never enough, no uh, matter how many you have. <laughs> and uh, and so we had this this raging debate of do we invest more in the buyer experience or do we invest more in the seller experience? Oh, interesting. And the decision was made through several you know high level conversations that that. Our customers were our sellers because okay. they're the ones who pay us money. You know, the listing fee. Hmm. They're the ones who pay the the commissions on the sales that are going on. They're the ones who pay the listing upgrades that are kind of like you know merchandising with underlines and bolds and right. things like that on their listing. And so, for that reason, we kind of decided that they were our customer. We're going to focus more attention on their needs rather than the buyer. Okay. And I think that that was utterly backwards. Hmm. Um, and I think we realized it many years later. Okay. Uh, after eight. 
consecutive quarters of declining, you know, revenue and, and, and share, share price. It's amazing how um, those numbers come back. <laughs> and, and, but, but, you know, then they figured it out and, and, yeah. and nailed it. And, and I think that the issue was it, was, it was a lack of understanding that we actually weren't providing a service to sellers. Mm-hmm. What we were was not even a marketplace. eBay was an economy. Mm-hmm. And if you wanted to run an economy, you think about what you do, you, you stimulate demand. You don't stimulate supply. supply like that doesn't, right. and, and so what happened was the seller vacation hold feature was a, was a, was a classic example. We'd, we'd go and do our diligence, talking to customers, yeah. understanding what their needs were. And so sellers would say, well, so it's, it's a big uh, constraint for me because I want to take my family on vacation for a week. Uh-huh. But if I'm going to take a week off uh, for vacation, I have to take two weeks off from listing things on eBay because <laughs> I can't list anything that's going to expire while I'm on vacation. And right. obviously, while I'm on vacation, I can't list anything then either. Right. So you guys are losing two weeks worth of your revenue right. because I have to, you know, for, for this one week off. And we did the whole NPV calculation and everything right. else. And it was this multi-million dollar improvement that we right. could make. And so we invested in that type of feature while at the same time, what we weren't doing was investing in the buyer experience. And, right. and the one thing that sellers won't tell you that they uh-huh. want when you ask them is that they just, what they really want is not seller vacation hold. What they want is when somebody's looking for the product that I'm selling, right. make them type eBay.com into their browser instead of something else. Right. That's what I want. Right. And it's right. the one thing that you that, that kind of goes without saying that you don't really hear. <laughs> and so the best way that we could have served sellers was by investing more in the buyer experience. And that and and the and the, the big thing that I learned there was that supply follows demand, okay. not the other way around. Right. Mm. And so I've tried to apply that at just about every company I've been, whether it's a marketplace or not, is right. can you frame the challenge in the same kind of terms and realize that's the perspective that you need to take? And that, again, came from a, a, an intimate you know, understanding of the business to recognize what it was, which is that it wasn't actually a business. It was an economy an that economy. was making money off of taxes, effectively, from right. sales and transactions that were taking place. Totally fine. Totally yep. fine to do that kind of thing for profit. It was actually a great business. It still right. is a great business. Right. But when you understand that, it shifts completely the mentality of where do you focus your attention from right. a product perspective. And once they kind of got that right, right. the stock price went all the way up into the right again. And, and Start to see a hockey phenomenal, stick again. Phenomenal growth. What an awesome story. This has been so much fun. I yeah. really appreciate you coming by the studio, Ben. Thank you for taking the time and not only the time to be on, but also to come over to the office. It's great to see you live. Um, and I really appreciate the insights into the role of chief product officer and how you see it. Thanks for sharing all your insights on innovation. Great. Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. The Innovation Engine podcast is brought to you by Three Pillar Global a product lifecycle management and software development company based in Fairfax, Virginia. Head to www.3pillarglobal.com to learn more about our services. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud, and Spotify, and we post extensive show notes for each episode on the 3 Pillar website at 3pillarglobal.com slash podcast. That's three with the number three. Last but not least, we're always striving to improve here on the Innovation Engine podcast, and we get asked often, who listens to it? We can see from our analytics that a pretty healthy number of you do listen, but raw download numbers don't do much to help us learn who out there is listening, what your day-to-day jobs are like, and what kinds of topics or which specific guests you might like to hear from. So if you'd like to help make the Innovation Engine a little bit better, please take a few short minutes out of your day and shoot me a quick email with some of that information. 
will.sherlin at threepillarglobal.com is my email address. Also, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn and message me there. Thanks as always for listening, and we'll see you next time.